Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It's Monday, November 14th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by U.S. correspondents Jacob Magid and Luke Tress. Hello to you both. Hey, Jessica. Hi, Jessica. So it's all about the results of the U.S. midterm elections today. We'll speak about what these final midterm results mean for U.S.-Israel ties, the results of the New York elections and the Haredi vote. We'll also get into the U.S. response to the newly elected far-right politician Itamar Ben-Gvir and why Ukraine supported an anti-Israel initiative at the U.N. And we'll get into all of that right after a quick break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Okay, Jacob. So the Democrats kept control of the Senate in last week's midterm elections, something we did not know yet when we discussed this last week on the podcast. Tell us what it all means for U.S.-Israel ties. So we found out on Saturday night that the Democrats, with a key couple of victories in Nevada and Arizona, will um, be in control of the Senate. It's possible even with a two-seat majority instead of a one-seat majority, depending on what happens in this Georgia runoff between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker uh, in Georgia. So that will not take place till December. But in the House, it's still not completely done with the counting, but I think this is it's important to look at, and we're likely talking about a, a slim majority for the Republicans. And why this is important is that despite the Democrats doing much better than people anticipated, a switch in control of the House means the party in control gets to decide what comes to the floor. So even if legislation that the House, the Republicans bring doesn't get past the House and, and is stuck in the Senate or is vetoed by the White House, the fact that these issues are now going to be able to come to debate um, based on what the Republicans want in the House is significant. And I think based on talking to a few Washington insiders about what the kinds of legislation that we might be seeing over the next couple of years um, because of the House likely majority or if the Republicans secure a majority in-house, um, one of the things that they're talking about likely being able to move forward is the, um, some sort of legislation that will uh, co- codify the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. Now, this is an anti-Semitism definition that has been pushed by Israel specifically and a lot of pro-Israel mainstream Jewish organizations in the U.S. that give all these definitions and try to limit or try to make connections between criticism in Israel and, and anti-Semitism. That's saying that they're always synonymous, but saying that there are a lot of times where it is. And this is something that is very popular among Republicans and even some Democrats. And I think in the past, um, when we saw, with, for example, the Iron Dome vote, where 
the narrative of that the exchange was that the Democrats were divided on this issue, even though it was a Republican at the end that kind of blocked it for months. It was two days of Democrats blocking it, and that became the narrative about this division among Democrats on Israel. And I think in the past, where the Democrats didn't want to kind of air those grievances and differences publicly, now they're going to have a harder time and less of an incentive to do to be so cautious. And I think we're going to be seeing more Democrats be willing to join Republicans on things that the Republicans are the ones moving forward in the first place. So the IRA definition is one. Another is some sort of legislation or, or resolution or call on the Biden administration to... Um, strip funding from the UN Human Rights Council due to its uh, commission of inquiry into Israel. Um, and this is something that's very popular among Republicans and also a growing amount of Democrats who might be willing, once it's brought to the floor, to, to join Republicans in the House and in the Senate. One last thing I think might be interesting to follow is Palestinian aid, um, aid for Palestinian civil society and for the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, which I also think will at least come to the discourse as something that Congress is pushing for, as opposed to before when Democrats were able to block it. I think that now that Republicans are the one leading the agenda in the House, we could um, see more debate about whether the U.S. should be giving the money to to the Palestinians as they continue to implement their program, their um, martyr payments program, which is uh, incredibly unpopular among Republicans and a growing number of Democrats. So that's those are the legislation I think we might expect to see with a House majority of being Republican. In general, though, we're talking about likely a split between the two houses, and I think that will just grind things to a slower halt. So I think that's something to take note of. The, at the micro level, though, I don't think too much is really going to change um, in terms of if you look at the, the races that were that switched between from Democrat to Republican or, Demo or Republican to Democrat. A lot of the times there are these more moderate or centrist candidates that due to being more moderate or centrist, they often take very hawkish positions on foreign policy, including Israel. So whoever won, if it was a Republican or a moderate Democrat, there's not a huge difference on the issues, um, at least on, on foreign policy. So I wouldn't expect at the micro level a big difference. But the fact that the Republicans are now going to be in control, likely, of the House is, is significant and something to watch for. Okay. We'll keep on following that. Thanks for that, Jacob. Luke, turning to you and New York, the Republican candidate Lee Zeldin did not win in his bid for governor, defeated by Kathy Hochul. Uh, how is that likely to play out with the Haredi, with the ultra-Orthodox community, which seemed to be more likely to be voting for Zeldin? Hochul ended up winning. She was always ahead in polls, but at the end it was really narrow and it, it, was, it became a very competitive race. I don't think Hochul is going to turn her back on Jewish communities or something like this. The state has been, um, there are new state laws passed this year that will make um, regulations uh, more strict about secular education in yeshivas, which has really infuriated a lot of people in the community. It's really seen as a government overreach and um, infringing on religious beliefs. That the New York Times has been really aggressively covering yeshivas in one article after another. And Hochul was pretty quiet about the issue. She didn't come out in terms of in, in supporting reforms to yeshivas. Also, uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, they both kind of tried to stay out of it. Zeldin was really hammering on this. He said, I'll be, I'll be the defender of yeshivas. My mom was a yeshiva teacher. Just going after this over and over again. And the state education 
education department is not under the governor's control. So it's it's he like it's not if he had been elected, he couldn't reverse these changes. They've already been voted into law. You know, like nobody's going to turn back the clock on these. These these changes are coming. But he was able to win a lot of support by by speaking out on this when Holka was pretty silent about it. And a lot of people were bitter about her being quiet about it. Um, a lot of people are also still bitter about some COVID policies earlier in the pandemic that closed schools and um, schools and schools in the city. So a lot of this was kind of seen as as democratic policies that the community didn't like. And whether Hochul, like she wasn't governor at the time of the COVID um, closures, uh, she wasn't governor when the like the yeshiva reforms have been like in the works for years. There's been pressure for years. So she was kind of getting punished by stuff that predated her and is not necessarily under her control. But people are people are upset in these communities about some democratic policies. Um, crime crime is another issue. I think anti-Semitism is actually a little less of an issue for people on the ground. They they want stronger punishments for people who attack Jewish people and commit other crimes. But anti-Semitism, it's kind of seen as something that just exists and no, nobody can snap their fingers and make people not be anti-Semitic. So they're more focused on crime than anti-Semitism. I don't expect her relationship to, to really change. She's not going to turn her back on some parts of the community who, who really went against her. Um, she's sh- her and the rest of the Democratic establishment who are also voted in, like Chuck Schumer, Tish James, um, Eric Adams is still in power. They've all they've been close friends to Jewish communities and Haredi communities for a long time, and I don't I don't think it's going to change because some communities voted against Hochul in this in this one governor's race. Okay, all right, thanks for that, Luke. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, Jacob will tell us what the U.S. reaction is to Itamar Ben Gvir, uh, the newly elected far right politician, and Luke will also talk to us about what happened in the U.N. the other day. I got married this Monday, in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like, my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories, Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we're back. So, Jacob, tell us what the reaction has been since Israel's elections and the election of far-right politician Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is possibly slated to become the public security minister. That's what he's rooting for, and that has not been ruled out, which will give him control of the police, among other things. What's the reaction from your end? 
everyone just assumes that he's going to be public security minister. So that seems like a done deal. Um, the Biden administration has been careful not to comment specifically on um, anything beyond just congratulating Netanyahu. It even took them a few days to want to do that until it was the results were official. Um, but they've been careful not to comment too much on the possible makeup, at least publicly, of the next government. Um, and that kind of changed a bit um, after Itamar Ben-Gvir attended last Thursday a memorial event for the late extremist racist rabbi Mayor Kahana. Um, ben Greer has tried to, to campaign on this point that he's moderated his opinions, and he even went to this event and said um, that me and Kahana don't agree on the same on all the same things. We, I, as opposed to Kahana, only want to expel quote unquote disloyal Arabs, whereas he wanted to expel all Arabs. And I don't agree that there should be separate beaches for Arabs and Jews. Um, so he was actually booed at the event for that. But then he also talked about how much how Kahana is really about love. And and that was what he was ultimately about. And there's a lot to respect for that. He, this is someone at the end of the day who's labeled his whose organization is labeled as a terrorist organization in the US um, and in Israel. And the Biden administration made an interesting point of preparing a statement on this. It wasn't just something out of the blue that the State Department spokesman was asked about, and then this is what he said, but they had written this in advance um, ahead of the briefing where he was asked about this, Ned Price, and they said that celebrating the legacy of a terrorist organization is abhorrent. There was no other word for it. It is abhorrent. Um, so that was pretty interesting to hear them talk about that on Thursday, really before they didn't specifically say this is going to be someone who's the next public security minister, but this is the first comment they've really made about Bengvir, and it's not it's not like they're not talking about it behind closed doors. They're, the Biden administration is very concerned about the rise of both Bengvir and um, his the number one in religious Zionism party, Batsala Smotrich. Both of them are likely to receive very senior ministerial posts. Um, and I think there's been talk about whether the Biden administration is going to be working at all with them. I think they might be more limited than they think initially, but they are talking about possibly not, if possible, um, to, to, to not really be working with them so much, not inviting them to visit to the U.S., and there's even rumblings from what I've heard in Washington that it's not necessarily that they'll be able to get visas, at least for sure Bengvir is more of a question because this is someone that has been convicted on terror-related charges. Um, and to get a visa, you have to get a background check. Um, and it's not a 100% certainty that I think that he'll be allowed to come to the, to the U.S. for meetings with U.S. officials. I think Bengvir has talked about uh, that he's trying to meet with some diplomats in Israel to try to explain who he really is so people aren't so feel f fearful of him. And he said that he's already started doing this. But then our colleague Tosh Schneider reported um, just uh, earlier th today about the fact that he's hasn't held any meetings, or the least that we've tried to track down who all various embassies in the in the Europe and the U.S. and nobody said that they've met with him yet. So it's unclear whether he's actually doing this so far. But it was a recommendation also from President Herzog when he met with him because there was a real concern, specifically about the Temple Mount issue, because Bengvir has been someone who's been very adamant, and so is Smotrich, about changing the status quo and allowing Jewish prayer at the Temple Mount. Um, this is something that is very much opposed to by most of the Arab world. Um, has a lot of people on edge, and I think, uh, including the Biden administration, I think it's the one issue that they really are most concerned about. I think their main thing is trying to put out fires, and they don't want to have to see one in Jerusalem again. So uh, there's a lot of concern, and now we're starting to see the first public comments about Bengvir. And I'm sure we'll see more. Okay. Right. So we'll hear how that goes. Luke, finally, 
Uh, going to you and talking about Israeli envoy Michael Brodsky, the ambassador to Ukraine, who lashed out at Ukraine at Kiev on Friday for supporting a resolution by a United Nations committee that uh, called on the International Court of Justice to weigh in on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and specifically Israeli annexation. Tell us a little bit about this. Obviously, very unexpected in a sense. And of course, as the envoy, as my envoy Brodsky pointed out, it would not help any between, in terms of the relationship between the two countries. Yeah, so on Friday, the United Nations Fourth Committee, which is one of the committees that makes up the General Assembly, passed a resolution that will have the International Court of Justice. Um, urgent, they said urgently weigh in on um, the the conflict. Essentially, they use some language like annexation that Israel doesn't like. They also ignore Jewish ties to the Temple Mount, which which the Israel's ambassador to the UN, Gilad Erdan, was really angry about and talked about in the speech to the committee. Um, it refers to the Temple Mount only as Haram el Sharif and not not as the Temple Mount. It says it's an occupied territory, so. That was seen as very offensive, kind of negating Jewish connection to Ju- Judaism's holy place. This resolution, it was part of several um, Palestinian, Israeli-Palestinian resolutions um, on the day. This one passed 98 countries in favor, 17 opposed, and 52 abstentions, the one for the Court of Justice. And one of the countries voting in favor was Ukraine. And uh, of course, Israel and Ukraine have had this tense relationship around the war with uh, Ukraine continually pushing Israel for more military support and Israel reluctant to do that because of Syria and and threats to to ties with Russia. Um, And Israel has been providing diplomatic and humanitarian support, but has not been giving military aid, which the Ukrainians really want, including missile defense um, like Iron Dome. So Ukraine voted against Israel in this resolution. And uh, soon after, Israel's ambassador to Ukraine lashed out saying, supporting anti-Israel initiatives in the UN doesn't help build trust between the two countries. Uh, there hasn't been a response from Ukraine yet. So it's, I, I don't, we, we can't say definitively why they voted for this. Um, it might have been, you know, sand in the face of Israel it might be something else. We don't know. Bahrain and the UAE, Egypt, Jordan all voted in favor of this, which has not been discussed. But there, there are Arab countries who tend to side with the Palestinians more, so it's less of a surprise. A day later, Lapid and Gantz also spoke out about this. They didn't talk about Ukraine, but they're upset about this request that the court weigh in on the conflict, which it has not done since 2004. So it's a, it could be a pretty big step. The resolution will get formally, it, it, it should be a formality, it will get official approval from the General Assembly next month, and then the, the investigation will start after that. I think it's just going to have a really hard time defending this, especially with the change of government. Um, we're going to have people, I mean, the, the resolution was really about um, this legal opinion that they're going to be asking to determine whether this is like a continuous occupation um, in the West Bank, whether there's like de facto annexation taking place on the ground. And when you have a government of, of ministers that are all supportive of annexation, it's going to be tough. I mean, even Erdogan himself, who's their Israeli ambassador right now, um, he talked about, and is someone who supported moving forward with annexation, 
administration a few years ago. He talked about how the only way forward is peace negotiations, and you can't do it through the UN. But like Israel hasn't wanted to do any. It was even a part of the principles of the previous government, which was seen as more moderate, that they refused to do any negotiations with the Palestinians. All the meetings were seen as like through a security lens. So there was that line from there down that was kind of bizarre. Do we know why this happened now? I think the Palestinians have been pushing this measure for what they've been trying to take uh, steps to the UN. Uh, Luke might be able to say more, but I think that, that they just, they're they're feeling that there's no other um, avenue for them to de- deal with the conflict right now. Israel's not interested in negotiations, um, and the, the best way forward is through diplomatic means, is where they actually have some sort sort of support. Luke, yeah, I mean this this court this court is a UN a UN body, the International Court of Justice. It's it's not the International Criminal Court. So it's it's asking this UN court to weigh in, which it hasn't done since 2004. So I think time, the, like time had elapsed. They felt they could press this again. And um, I mean, I don't think there's a particular reason. Like, I, I don't think it's connected to elections in Israel. I don't think there's a particular thing happening. It's just a kind of part of an ongoing diplomatic effort by the Palestinians. And it's it's one of several similar things happening at the UN right now. I do think Erdogan was particularly uh, harsh in his response. Uh, I think Israel's hoping maybe that if they push back, this is kind of what they did on uh, with Australia when Australia moved its em- or moved re- re- revoked its uh, recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Um, they kind of had a really strong push in, in response. Israel did. I think it was said to, in order to prevent them from going a step further. So that's possible. Why Erdogan's making this very harsh response? There's also, I think, the fact that we have this new government that's going to take a much more harsh. Uh, look at these kinds of steps. But it's just kind of bizarre if they're talking about Erdogan said the unilateral moves and so did Lapid talked about the 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 detriment of, of unilateral moves by the Palestinians, but like the, the, that opens Israel up to criticism for unilateral moves on its side about what, in terms of the West Bank and how, how it continues to expand settlements. So I, it's going to be very hard to argue these uh, against some of these cases in the UN, I think. Right. Hard to see how this is all going to play out, but I'm sure you will both cover it. So we thank you for that. We're going to close out this daily briefing. Thank you, Jacob, and thank you, Luke. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. And we'll be back tomorrow with another daily briefing. In the meantime, enjoy your listening. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.